You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You can find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We're also pleased to be a podcast partner of the All Indiana Podcast Network. That is with Channel 8, Wish TV. You can find leaders and legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Pete Ward. Pete Ward has probably been the most suggested guest of anyone we've yet been so lucky to have on the podcast. Pete is the Chief Operating Officer of your Indianapolis Colts. And if you want to talk about uh, the personification of paying your dues, Pete Ward is it. Because how he started in the Colts organization is the story we're about to hear. Pete, thank you so very much for your time. It's a real pleasure, Robert. Have you always been a football fan? I have always been. And uh, I can trace where I am today back to when I was 11 years old. We lived in California, and uh, my favorite team was the Dallas Cowboys. And they had their training camp in Thousand Oaks, and my parents took me uh, there uh, to visit. And, of course, I wanted to be a player. Uh, this is in 1968, and uh, but I also noticed the people who weren't playing or coaching. The, you know, the ball boys and the guy that was taking the players over to to do the camera interviews, and that just always fascinated me. And and as I uh, grew older, I started looking into colleges which offered uh, some sort of a degree in in sports administration. And there was only one back then; it was Ohio University. So. Uh, uh, when I uh, ended up going to school, um, and it turned out I was went to school out east, and I was able to create my own major, which was sports management, and and then uh, you know from and that kind of you know was the first time I really uh, you know started in my career really. Um, yeah, go ahead. Do you remember the first football game you saw on TV? I do. Or? It was uh, first pro football game was November of 1967. It was in Kizar Stadium in uh, San Francisco. And just by coincidence, it was the Niners hosting the Baltimore Colts. Who'd you root for? I rooted for the Niners. I hated the Colts. <laughs> <laughs> Kizar Stadium. It was Johnny Unitas. It was, you know, Raymond Berry, uh, I think was, uh, that was his, might have been his last active game, uh, Raymond Berry. Lenny Moore, you know, and the Colts are a great team and they won, of course. That stadium's famous for being featured in the movie Dirty Harry. Absolutely. That's uh, what my favorite scene in the movie. How did you make sports a vocation? And we're going to talk more about your childhood, talk more how you got there. But you mentioned it a few seconds ago about being a kind of a sport, creating your own sports major. Now, almost every school has sports management, that sort of thing. But at what point did you realize I want sports to be my vocation, how I feed my family? You know, honestly, Robert, you go back to my, when I was 11 years old, I wanted to, to do what I'm doing now. And it sounds, it sounds a little bit weird, but, uh, but I'm being honest with you. And, um, you know, I had, you know, along the way, I had a few other interests that I kind of, you know, thought about, but this was always, uh, on my mind. And, um, and when I was, uh, when I went to college and found out I could create a major uh, that kind of was geared to sports management, sports business, 
uh, you know, I jumped at it. And, um, and that was what helped me get my internship with the Baltimore Colts back in 1981. And that's exactly what I was going to ask you. Did you feel like that particular major, that self-crafted major, gave you a leg up? Because no one else could probably say, hey, this is all my resume. It certainly helped. You know, I don't, th- I don't know if the curriculum really helped me all that much in what I do today, but, um, but it certainly showed that I was dedicated. And uh, back then, I, I, you know, when I went to the Colts, I went to the Colts second. I went to the Redskins first because they were two miles from my parents' home in northern Virginia and asked them if I, uh, if I could volunteer that summer. Um, you know, as I was on Christmas break, and they said no. Baltimore was the next closest place, and, and they said yes. So I really, it, it was called, you know, I, I was a volunteership, really. It wasn't really an internship, and it didn't pay anything. I don't know that they paid much attention to labor laws uh, as, as much as they do today, but, um, but that was really how uh, I got my foot in the door. You say you grew up a Cowboys fan. Did I hear you correctly? I was a Cowboys fan, yeah, back before it was uh, in vogue to be a Cowboys fan. This is back in the 60s. But they were pretty good in the late 60s. They were good. They, and they kept losing in the la- on the one-yard line to get to the Packers. And then, to the, and then they lost to the Colts in the final five seconds in Super Bowl V. And so you're a lifelong Cowboys fan, and you walk into the Redskins facility. Did you feel a little, little pang? I, I hated every second of it. <laughs> and to show you how naive I was, I, went to, uh, I started my internship with the Colts with a Dallas Cowboys bumper sticker on my car. <laughs> uh is it hard to let go of those loyalties uh it, not anymore it wasn't it was at first you know but w- once i um w- once i became a full-time employee for the colts it was uh it was easy you know it's it's your life and uh people not in the business uh including family members will always kind of think of it as a game but it's really it's really, it's your life and your livelihood and you take it very seriously and you have to be all in. You got to be a homer all the way. That's what I tell interns when they come. I said, don't, don't be stupid like I was. You know, you may have uh, a favorite team uh, somewhere else, but for this summer, you're, a, you're a, an Indianapolis Colts fan through and through. Do you go out to their cars to see if they have any uh, alien bumper stickers? <laughs> I don't do that anymore, no. You seen, is that what Steve Campbell does? Is it one of his many tour, chores? If he does. He hasn't told me that, but I would <laughs> hope not. <laughs> Our good friend Steve Campbell, who's VP of Communications, uh, helped make this interview possible. Uh, he used to work for Mayor Peterson. He's one of the really, really good guys in, in the PR world, and quite frankly, in his future, in his past life, excuse me, and that's politics. So, Steve, if you're listening, thank you very, very much. You mentioned he's, he's, also, he's a great asset to us. He's a wonderful man, for sure. You mentioned growing up a Cowboys fan, and you started with the Colts in the early 80s when they were still in Baltimore. Did you get to meet any of your Cowboy heroes? You know, I have a picture in my office here today. I wish I could turn the camera, but uh, it's of me with Don Meredith. Don Meredith was my hero. And still is, really. What do you think of the movie North Dallas 40? Uh, as, As a bunch of crap. (laughs) <laughs> it really was. Uh, no, it was a horrible movie to begin with, you know. But, uh, but it, it, you know, I mean, you know, Tom Landry, you know, and, and Don Meredith, you know, Bob Hayes, those are still immortals in my mind. Jethro Pugh, Bob Lilly, yeah, Mel Renfro, Dwayne Thomas. Yeah, Dwayne Thomas. That's right. Bullet Bob Hayes. Yeah. So. How did the University of Virginia, which if memory serves, is your alma mater, is that correct? That's correct. So you're probably still on a high from a certain NCAA tournament of not having I, I am. How did they let you create this, this major, for lack of a better term? I would credit my advisor. He was a sports uh, psych, uh, psychologist, a fairly prominent one, and he was my advisor at UVA and I, I talked to him quite a bit and uh, and he allowed me to, to to create something. So I was really uh, you know that's that was a break in my mind you know and uh, and uh, I was fortunate to have somebody that really cared about his students and um, and and their futures. 
there were several other, you mentioned the Redskins, but there are several other sports teams, uh, not just football, but, but other pro sports within, let's say, 100 miles of where you ended up in Baltimore. Did you ever think about going up to Philadelphia or maybe trying the Baltimore Bullets or anyone like that? Or was football something you were focused on? No, absolutely. Philadelphia was next on my list, honestly. And, um, and when my internship ended, I was uh, preparing letters to all kind of uh, sports teams of, um, of all the different leagues, including minor leagues. And, uh, and you know, I, I continued to go up to Baltimore and help out, you know, free of charge, just hang around the office when I had spare time, a weekend or during spring break, you know, I was in my final semester at UVA and, um, and I graduated and I, I didn't have a job. So I went up and was just hanging out and helping out. And, uh, you know, somebody quit the lowest rung on the ladder resigned and Ernie Acorsi, he was the general manager at the time actually came into the PR office where I was standing and he asked the PR director, how do I get a hold of Pete Ward? And I was standing right behind him. I said, I'm right here. And he asked me if I wanted a job. And I said, absolutely. Is that the last time you went unrecognized at the Colts headquarters? Oh, no, I, I, no, that, that was, uh, I was unrecognized for quite a, quite a while yet. <laughs> so. What year was, did you graduate from college? I'm sorry. What year did you graduate from college? Uh, 82. So you were at the University of Virginia to switch sports for just a second as a certain seven foot four center named Ralph Sampson. What was it like to be at Virginia when they very quickly became a uh, basketball uh, powerhouse? It was tremendously exciting. I remember watching on TV when he declared uh, and, uh, you know, the, the place went nuts and um, Virginia did not have a proud athletic history. You know, so this was really the first time having Ralph come to it was already a, a pretty good team. We had Jeff Lamp and Lee Raker and, and a few others. And Ralph uh, put us on the map. So for the student body at UVA, it was really exciting time. And they made it to the Final Four, I think, 1981, right? They were there. They lost to North Carolina in 1981 when IU beat LSU and then ended up to beat North Carolina. Is that right? That is that is absolutely correct, yes. Did you ever, I'm assuming you saw him around campus, what was it like to see a seven-foot-four student strutting around the UVA campus? Yeah, well, the, the most clear memory I have is walking between classes, and there's a, a, a street that goes through the center of campus with thousands of students walking from one class to another at a certain time of day, and, and Ralph you know, three blocks ahead, you could always spot Ralph. <laughs> so it was pretty comical. It's kind of when we did a podcast with Donnie Walsh, I asked him about being in New York City the same time as Lou Alcindor, eventually Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and he was like, he, he was so immense. He was just so much bigger than everyone else you could see him for. He couldn't hide if he wanted to. I'm assuming Samson was the same way. No, no question about it, yeah. Then in 1984, Virginia makes it to the Final Four again after beating IU in the Elite Eight after IU beats North Carolina. Have you followed Virginia sports and Virginia basketball? And they recently won the national championship. And you get back there much for games? I was just guessing it's an amazing atmosphere. It's a great atmosphere, you know, like, like a lot of colleges. And um, I don't uh... – I don't get back there very often, unfortunately. It's wonderful memories, and um, and I follow them. Uh, it was really, a, you know, an awesome uh, a time when they, you know, two years ago when they won the Final Four. But uh, unfortunately, I can't. I don't have the time to get back there very often. And I have, you know, a family now, and and you know, other places to go when I have that free time. So, um, but I'm there in spirit. You graduated from UVA in 1982 and went to work immediately, if memory serves, for, uh, for the Baltimore Colts. You were a Cowboys fan growing up. The Colts had beaten the Cowboys in Super Bowl V. You walked to uh, the Redskins first, uh, their arch enemy, and ended up in Baltimore. It's been so long ago, you forget that in 1982, Baltimore was only 12 years away from having won a Super Bowl. 
with I think Bubba Smith and and Unitas and Mike Curtis and that group of folks. Yet you kind of, based on everything I've ever heard and read, you walked into a situation in Baltimore where the city and the team and the team's owner were not getting along. Can you talk to the Leaders and Legends podcast audience a little bit about your memories and your perception of why there was so much conflict? Uh, sure. So um, it was certainly an antagonistic relationship between, you know, our owner, Bob Ursay, and, uh, and, and the city of Baltimore. Um, he had uh, it, it, he had made overtones about moving, you know, at one point in the mid seventies, and um, but he was playing in a stadium that was falling apart. You know, the press box would leak when it rained, and the, the sight lines were horrible. And the Colts were housed in the same locker room as Alan Amici. You know, it was like a dungeon, and uh, <laughs> you know, shower heads wouldn't work, and so forth. And uh, so. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't the best relationship. Um, and it, honestly, you know, it, the team had trouble drawing uh, fans and the sellout streak actually ended the year before uh, Bob Ursay bought the team in 71 um, and he bought the team in 72. And then um, the Colts were, were pretty good. They were contenders in the mid seventies, 75, 76 and 77 with Burt Jones and Roger Carr. And, oh, they had great teams. And lost the sack back. Overtime, lost that double yeah. overtime game to the Raiders. Yeah. But if you look at the, uh, at, at the, at the box scores of the games, uh, you know, sellouts were still not the norm. And, uh, and that continued into the early eighties. So, uh, so, it, you know, and, in January of 84, uh, it was made public that Bob Ursay was talking with uh, the governor of Arizona about a potential move there. And, and uh, the information was leaked and, um, and that kind of blew the lid off things. And then two months later, we moved. Were you prepared to go wherever the Colts went? I was prepared. I was single and, and young at the time. And, uh, but honestly, I didn't really think we would move. I thought it was more of a negotiating ploy with Baltimore. And by the time we moved, it was late March. It was March 28th, the night of the move. And, you know, we, we had the draft was one month away, less than one month away. We had many camps coming up right after the draft. We had, you know, training camp a few months away and, uh, so th to make a move that late in the year was just unimaginable. And, um, so it was, a, it was quite a shock when Jim Ursay called me into his office late in the day and said, uh, you know, we're moving in a few hours. So go home, get your personal life in order, which I had none, which so that was easy. And then, uh, come back and, and help bring some semblance of order to, to this move. Cause at 10 o'clock Mayflower at 10 or, 14 moving bands are going to come in uh, from all over the country and, and you need to kind of help uh, bring some order to this thing. When did you learn that you were moving to Indianapolis and what were your impressions of moving to Indianapolis? And I would just gently remind the leaders and legends podcast audience that the Indianapolis, you know, of the past 30 plus years is not the Indianapolis the Colts moved to in March of 84. Sure. Well, first of all, moving in itself was uh, mixed emotions, you know, um, the proud history in Baltimore, you know, the, the friends that I had uh, working with the Colts there, not everybody was invited to make that move. So it was really um, an emotional time uh, as a young person. Uh, it, it was also very exciting and, and uh, because I had no strings, you know, holding me back to the East coast and, and going someplace with, uh, for a fresh start in a less hostile environment was really exciting to me. Uh, I'll be honest with you at the time, Arizona was much more appealing to me. I thought going to Phoenix was, uh, was really uh, appealing to me. Um, but, you know, uh, Indianapolis had this brand new stadium the Hoosier Dome and a very enthusiastic, uh, you know, fan base waiting for us. And, and so it was, uh, again, it was an exciting time, but a, one of a very mixed emotions. 
Well, the Hoosier Dome must have seemed like the Taj Mahal compared to Municipal Stadium in Baltimore. What, what were your feelings? We, ha- we heard a great story. Uh, we did a podcast with a man who I think is the most underrated um, leader and, and actuator of things happening. And that's former Senior Deputy Mayor David Frick. Sure. Imprint is all over the city in more ways than I could ever count. He's a marvelous man. He was a terrific podcast guest. He said one of the things that impressed Ursay was, and he said this wasn't planned, was the fact that in the old Hoosier Dome, the RCA Dome eventually, the seats on the lower level were Colts blue. And terrific, was a- terrific coincidence, yes. It was a state-of-the-art stadium back then. To have a dome stadium to begin with, was rare and uh you know to, and to have suites which we didn't have suites in baltimore to have suites and and this brand new colorful astroturf and to have a jumbo screen albeit it was only in one end of the stadium and compared to today's uh, jumbotrons it was archaic and um and pretty really primitive but that was all state-of-the-art back then and, and, and so that added to uh the appeal for me um and, uh, you know, it was just uh, a time that was very, uh, you know, was full of adrenaline and exhausting to, re- to remember because we were basically starting from scratch. You know, uh, aside from having the, our players and coaches signed, we were starting a franchise from, from scratch. When we moved in to this abandoned elementary school on the northeast side, we uh, didn't know what our address was. We didn't have stationary we didn't have a copier we didn't have phones we didn't have anybody to answer phones and all this with the draft right around the corner so it was uh i don't know how to explain i wouldn't want to go through it a second time (laughs) but it was but it was exciting uh at the same time you mentioned the draft in 84 and having to prepare for it but the colts were kind of really the lead story in professional football other than the Super Bowl winner, uh, two years in a row, at the time that you were walking into the Redskins, they had just come off a Super Bowl win. But 1983, the Colts had the number one pick in the draft. Uh, John Elway basically forced a trade with another team, turned out to be Denver. So both in 83 and then your move in 84, the Colts were at the top of the NFL and let's say media consciousness. How do you think the Colts handled that as an organization? And what was it like for you as a, as a basically a young kid right out of college to see this almost baptism by fire year after year? Uh, well, honestly, it was, it was a valuable, uh, it was very valuable in terms of uh, an education. Right. And, um, you know, uh, Ernie, of course, he, the, the man who hired me always said, um, if you're going to be with a team, be on a very good one or a very bad one. Um, if you're with the bad one, you'll, you'll learn a lot, a lot faster. And, um, and we, we, uh, you know, we made some, uh, really momentous faux pas, uh, back during that time. Um, you know, the Elway trade was one, when we came to Indianapolis, the mindset of uh, Mr. Ristay and, and honestly of the entire league was uh, we're the NFL and people will come and fans will come. But man, if we had just put a little bit of uh, investment into community relations and, uh, and marketing, uh, those are, those were great opportunities that we left on the table back then. And we didn't have the staff to do that. So I was, uh, you know, along with, you know, Jim Ursay, who was a young guy, who was the youngest general manager, maybe in league history. Um, we're just trying to, uh, keep our heads above water back then. And, and, uh, uh, you know, I wish we had handled a few things differently when we uh, first arrived in Indianapolis. But you arrived to Indianapolis. I, re- I remember, obviously, I was came in March of 84, which I would have been, no offense, Pete, I'm not that much younger. I mean, I'm a little bit younger than you, but 
it's not like it's 50 years. I would have been a sophomore in high school at Howe on the East side. And I just remember the city just, you couldn't, it was more of a situation where you simply couldn't believe that an NFL team was in Indianapolis. Like, like you can't be serious. We have an NFL team and the NFL was probably not the leading sport in the country back in the early eighties. I would say probably baseball was, it was still in, in much of its heyday. Obviously that's flipped now. I think the NFL is almost the rock, paper and scissors of American sports life. But how do you feel about looking back and, the folks in Indiana, Indianapolis and Indiana, the Hoosiers, how they welcomed you and adopted the Colts as their own team. It's just a, an amazing community. And uh, back then and still is today. And you mentioned Dave Frick. He was really emblematic of, uh, of the community. And uh, the welcome we received was incredible. Um, you know, it's, it's such a unique I, I always tell people uh, out, outside of Indianapolis that it's a small town. And even though it's a big city, it feels like a small town in many good ways. And, um, uh, but honestly, Robert, the honeymoon didn't last very long because by 86, by 1986, we started the year 0 13 and uh, the honeymoon had ended. And I think if we had, uh, you know, invested a little bit more in, um, in relationships with our clients and the community uh, that maybe, maybe wouldn't have happened so quickly. How important, I was in the military, I was in the Army at the time, if memory serves. How important was the Eric Dickerson trade in the late, mid to late 80s to bringing not only that infusion of talent to the Colts, but also to show the city, hey, we are invested to win. At the time, Dickerson was probably a top five player for the entire NFL. And now he's a member of the Indianapolis Colts in a trade from the Rams. It's very significant. And, and uh, Jim Ursa, I remember Jim telling me that this is going to put Indianapolis football on the map for the first time. And it did. And I remember I picked up Eric at the airport and we're driving to the complex and we had WIBC on. I can't remember who the morning host was, uh, but it was on a Saturday and, and it was you know, all about the trade and how this was the most significant story in Indianapolis sports history. And uh, it was very exciting at the time. Eric made us an instant contender. And I got the sense from, you know, reading interviews with Dickerson at the time, he just wanted to be embraced and wanted to be loved and appreciated and in a, by a team. And could you say there's almost a parallel relationship between the Colts and the city? The Colts wanted to be embraced by Indianapolis. They wanted to prove that they were willing to spend what it took to be a winner, to be a contender. I mean, the Pacers really weren't that great at the time, if I recall, but IU basketball was terrific, having won the national championship in 87. Notre Dame wins the national uh, championship in football in 88. And that trade, it seemed, put the Colts in that echelon that we didn't just come here for a stadium. We came here to win and be a part of the community. I think that's true. Uh, remember, Robert, before we moved to Indy, this was a town that followed the Bears and the Packers uh, to the Bengals to some extent. We were a novelty when we came here, and uh, you know, uh, you know, the Dickerson thing. Everybody here, you know, had watched Eric Dickerson and and other teams play for you know for years and years, and and this was bringing what had been um, you know uh, viewed and 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 absorbed by our local fan base here. It, it brought it home to Indianapolis and. One year later, we're playing on Monday Night Football for the first time in India, and that was, again, one of the most significant sporting events you know ever to hit our city. It was it was everything that we've watched for years. The big time coming home to Indy, and um, so it was it was a fun time, and and to have a, a team that was that went to the playoffs and and was competitive and won was uh, a big a big step forward. Uh, for growing our fan base. Was that the Halloween game? 
That was a Halloween game in 1988. When, where they passed out the masks of Dan Deerdorf and all the Monday Night Football. <laughs> yeah. That is so Indianapolis. Only Indianapolis would think of something so absolutely yeah. darling like that. Yeah, and there was a uh, basically a civic community uh, committee that came together to uh, to plan the events of that night, um, and uh, just like we did for the Super Bowl hosting job or or a Final Four, or what have you. So it was a, a big event, and um, and it was the entire community was involved. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn. And McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Pete Ward, Chief Operating Officer of the Indianapolis Colts. You heard me mention McAllister Machinery. P.E. McAllister was president of the Capital Improvement Board when the Colts moved here in 1984. I know he's a very fond memory for you. And sitting next to P.E., listening to him scream about the Colts special teams year after year after year <laughs> in his 80s and 90s while he's having a beer was uh, certainly a treat. Uh, take a few minutes, please, and, and maybe mention three or four folks. And don't feel bad if you can't remember them all, obviously, but maybe three or four people who you met and got to know in the early years of the Colts being here. Obviously, Hudnut would be one. We mentioned David Frick. I'm sure there are others. How some of the Hoosier leaders and legends you met made your move that much more beneficial? Oh, sure. Um, you know, Bill Hudnut, you know, not a device, a bone in his body. He brought people together and, and built them up and built uh, the community up. A uh, really special guy, just like Dave Frick and P.E. McAllister, you know, just want you know proud of their community and wanting to do the best you know for the people here uh, you know uh, Larry Conrad was no Jim Morris who uh, is you know still on the scene thankfully and uh, a big part of everything that goes on in Indianapolis today you know uh, Thomas Moses I remember when we first moved here um, like the second week I was called to come downtown and I can't remember what the group was, if it was, you know, the board of the chamber or um, or what it was. But uh, it was every mover and shaker in town. And here I was, you know, this kid and uh, representing the Colts, because honestly, we didn't have anybody else back then to do that. You know, birthday <laughs> was busy with other stuff. And uh, and they asked me, how can we help the Colts? You know, and back then players actually worked they held jobs during the offseason and uh, I said honestly you guys are doing so much for us right now the only thing that comes to mind is if you know the businesses here can help our players find offseason jobs and uh, and Thomas Moses Tom Thomas Moses really uh, uh, helped out in that regard it's a different scene now but uh, but those are a few of the people that come to mind um I remember meeting Mark Miles, uh, you know, the first week that I was here just by, um, you know, cause I, I, you know, I was with Jim Ursay at the time and, uh, and Mark was a youngster just like me. And, uh, that was, uh, before the Pan Am games came to Indy. Um, who else, you know, uh, you know, pillars of the community, like Frank Hancock, Frank Hancock, was with Cornelius Printing, and he walked into my office three days after the move, and, and he said, uh, do you guys need a printer? And I said, yes. And I said, we need somebody to print our programs and everything else. And he said, well, I'd like to make a proposal to you. And he made a proposal, and I said, we're with you, as long as you don't screw it up. <laughs> game day, we want to have our game programs there. That's probably the most important thing on my mind right now. And he's, he, you know, he, of course, came through for us. And and still does today and, the, and for the community in many ways. 
you mentioned Mark Miles. He's been a guest on the podcast twice. Uh, we interviewed him and then a podcast with the guy sent to you. We had him on with Mayor Greg Ballard and Mel Raines to talk about the uh, effort to land and, and host the Super Bowl. When you look at some of the people you met early on here and how they've risen to influential leadership roles, obviously Jim Morris's uh, contribution to the city is basically immeasurable. But you look at what Mark's doing out at the Speedway and you look at him as head of the Super Bowl committee. And does it give you an added sense of satisfaction that you see your friends and the people who are such tremendous leaders and have done so well succeed and prosper? There's no question about it. And, uh, and the common thread to all of them is that they're, they're selfless and, and, and put the community first, you know, and um, uh, Mark is, <laughs> I don't know how Mark uh, does what he, what he does and has done. You know, I don't know how he has enough time in the day because I know he has a family and he spends time with them. And, uh, and uh, he's, you know, it's just an, an honor to know and to have worked with, People like Mark and Allison Melanchthon, you know, we have so many great people in this community. I'm still waiting to have uh, an affirmative answer. I've asked this on several podcasts and actually at lunches. I want to meet the person who's told Allison Melanchthon no. You know, there was a time when I wanted to hire her to be our head of sales, you know, (laughs) exactly that in mind, you know. I I don't think telling Allison no is possible, both because of, how amazing she is and just the quality of her work and, and the, the content of, of her being. It's just so typical Indianapolis. I think she and Mark and obviously Morris and a lot of Bill Mays, other people we could mention who just seem to be the fabric of the city. It's quite frankly, one of the reasons I started the podcast is to talk to people like that, find out why they have contributed and how they've contributed so much to not only the city, but the state in the community at a neighborhood level. Allison Melangdon, who was president of the Super Bowl or head of the Super Bowl effort, she seems to personify that as well as anyone. I would totally agree. I had the pleasure of uh, watching her in action uh, on the Super Bowl committee, of which I was a part of, and uh, she was just amazing. And, and uh, you know, that Super Bowl, the hosting job that our city did, uh, was beyond compare. And I still get comments from, you know, national media, uh, people in the league that, uh, that was a memorable Super Bowl because of the job our community did. And of course it wouldn't have happened without leaders like, you know, Mark and Allison and many, many others. Let's let's pursue that for a little bit. And then I want to talk about some more about players and games and memories, but the Super Bowl. We put in a bid under Mayor Peterson, and we lost, I think, to Dallas. And then uh, Greg Ballard wins in 2007. He decides to, again, pursue it, this time with, with Mark Miles in charge. How did the Colts participate in that, and what are some of your recollections of that process? Well, number one, uh, Jim Irsay uh, participated financially. Um, it's not cheap. You need a lot of private money to even put a bid in on a Super Bowl, and to host it is even um, magnified many, many times over. Uh, Jim was, uh, to the best of my knowledge, the first NFL owner to contribute uh, what he did to uh, to the effort. Um, but um, it it was a uh, of, of course, it was a team effort, but we served as a liaison with the league. Um, we, uh, you know, every every team of a host city is heavily involved. You know, our training facility was used for the, believe it or not, the Patriots uh, to uh, <laughs> use uh, while they were here in practice. Uh, you can't see the video on these uh, podcasts, but I'll just relate to the audience that Pete took a deep breath. Yeah, but, but working with the league on, um, on ticket allocations and distribution and usage of the suites uh, and, uh, you know, and then having me as part of the committee, you know, which, you know, was you're involved with almost, you know, 
almost everything. So, so we were heavily involved, but by all means, Mark and Allison were doing the heavy lifting. And it's a city decision, right? So the, the city, the host city decides to go for it. But I would imagine that there's got to be some working in concert. If, if, if Mr. Ursay didn't want to bother with it, then that would influence the city's decision, I'm assuming. It's, it's a city event. It's a city effort. The, the team does not benefit in any way from hosting a Super Bowl. The other, uh, you know, important factor was uh, Jim Ursay uh, and the Colts, uh, had to really campaign with other owners to get uh, this done. And um, it would be very easy to go to a larger market. Um, and there's more competition now with new stadiums coming on, on online. But uh, the work that Jim did, you know, talking to each owner and campaigning for Indianapolis was critical. It should be noted that if we had won the right to host the Super Bowl in 2011 instead of 2012. That's the weekend. Dallas had this huge ice storm when they were hosting the Super Bowl. And I think if memory serves, we got about 12 inches of snow on what have been Super Bowl weekend. So the saying that one door closes and another door opens was certainly true for us for 2012. How sure were you, or were you sure at all, that Indianapolis was going to land this opportunity? You know what, I was, uh, I was very optimistic, but nothing is ever certain. You go into that room, and it's a, um, a confidential vote among owners, so you just don't, you have no idea how it's going to turn out. All I can tell you was the presentation that we put forth, not only for, for the 12 game, but for the 2011 game, where, where the we're the best. And, um, and, and, you know, it, it was just a very proud moment for me and for, you know, the Ursay family and the Colts that we could be a part of bringing the, you know, the game to Indianapolis. And uh, it was, I, I think that was, uh, I won't say it was as, as fulfilling and enjoyable as winning the Super Bowl, but it ranked very high on our, on our list of, uh, of memories. Did you think to yourself, my God, I'm about to be even busier? It was, it was all exciting and, and fun. There was no complaints there. Who got to tell you? Well, I was actually in the, in the room, um, you know, at the owner's meeting. And, uh, and, and so I knew before, uh, before anybody else did on the committee. You got to tell people. I, 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 as I recall, I believe I called uh, uh, Mark or Allison and told, as I recall, it, may, it was a very hectic moment. And uh, somebody from the league may have informed them before I did, but I think I, I, I told them first, but I'm, I, I can't, uh, I can't verify that for sure. And I would imagine Mr. Ursay was just beyond elated. He was ecstatic. Yeah, no question. And so we roll around to the time, and we should note that the next day, when the news is announced in the Indianapolis Star, our good friend Bill Benner is on the front page above the fold, looking handsome in color, and that's so fitting, given how much Bill Benner, former podcast guest, uh, has contributed to this city. There's a new mayor, a new way of doing things. We roll towards the Super Bowl. The committee completely redefined the Indianapolis Super Bowl committee and the city absolutely changed how Super Bowls are hosted and presented. You mentioned a few minutes ago that you still get compliments. What were the comp? I mean, the weather, obviously, no one can take credit for. Well, I guess he, the man upstairs could take credit for it. But all the things that happen on the grassroots level, all the spirit of volunteerism for which Indianapolis is famous, were you confident throughout the process as the game got closer and closer that, hey, we're going to pull this off and we're going to do it in a way that's never been done before? There was never a doubt in my mind. We were going to hit a home run. You know, we had the whole community involved uh, from, the, from the knitting the scarves to the zip line, um, you know, having a, a personal concierge for every owner that came in. It was just things that were unprecedented that Indianapolis was doing, of course, and, and, and that Indianapolis is famous for, 
for doing, pulling the unexpected out of its hat and doing uh, wonderful jobs of hosting big events. The funnest memory for me might have been the, the Tuesday or Wednesday before the outsiders started coming into town when when Indianapolis had the downtown uh, uh, you really? know, the NFL experience and the zip line to ourselves. And you could you could see it from all the Colts jerseys that were walking around downtown. And it was like our our city's time to to just enjoy it before the storm. And uh, that was a very, very warm and fuzzy community uh, time uh, in my and my family's uh, memory. To the extent that you can express this, uh, how happy were you that Peyton Manning's brother beat the Patriots again? <laughs> it was really miraculous. I mean, there was another miraculous play that led to that victory, <laughs> just like back uh, a few years earlier. Uh, we were happy for the Manning. We're always happy for the Manning family. Anytime they they achieve success, you know. So it was uh, it was just kind of ironic that you know, and and with all due respect to the Patriots. They were the evil empire to us back then. And, uh, and so I think a lot of our fans uh, enjoyed the outcome. How fun is it to have a, a nemesis like that and how much, how much different Indianapolis was? You can feel the sports impact on a city. When uh, Gene Cady and Bob Knight were coaching at their respective colleges, the, the days when those games were played, the city was just different. I mean, people were lined up, IU, Purdue. Pacers, Knicks is another example. But Colts, Patriots is at the very top of that sort of, of rivalry and that intensity. How much different were those games inside the Colts, Colts organization and the days leading up to those games? Were they different or was it like, okay, we're playing Buffalo or we're playing New Orleans? You know what? They were they were different, and you know, a rivalry rivalry like that is so important uh, to your to the to the world of sports and to our league. Uh, you know, to our fans, when you can have a rivalry like that, something that can really bond your community and and <laughs> hatred for another team. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a good thing for the you know for the community and for the home team. When we uh, you know, won the 2006 AFC championship game. It was uh, Hollywood and drama at its finest. Just all the pieces that, uh, that went into that victory. You know, we we're playing our rivals. They had our number. Uh, we're down 21-3 at one point. Uh, you know, we're on national TV. It's, it's, it's at night, and our crowd is the most jacked up and loud that in, in the history of our franchise and for us to come back and win in that fashion was just, uh, it, it, I, you know, I can't think of another event that has impacted our community instantly like that with, you know, strangers hugging each other and Democrats and Republicans hugging each other and people, <laughs> I mean, literally dancing in the streets and neighborhoods around the city and, uh, now, if we hadn't, if we hadn't won the Super Bowl, that game wouldn't have been as impactful. The fact that it was really a package deal, you know, in terms of the momentous games for me in my career, it was a package deal. I would say that 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 victory of the Patriots ranks number one. But if we didn't win the Super Bowl, it wouldn't have been uh, as as impactful for me. A few years later, which I believe I think was uh, Lucas Oil Stadium's initial inaugural season, Belichick goes for it on fourth and two. I was standing next to Mayor Greg Ballard when he did it. Uh, I don't know. I've ever been inside a non-concert because I've seen Ted Nugent and I've seen Van Halen and that's right. Like, but I don't know that I've ever been inside anything as loud as Lucas Oil Stadium was when the Colts stopped the Patriots on fourth and two. From an organization standpoint, I'm sure it's amazing because everyone's happy. But from a fan standpoint, you mentioned earlier in the podcast about being a homer. How great does that make you feel that the team you work for and have worked for for decades 
has that sort of impact on the field with terrific players, great citizens who do the right thing, and then they go and leave it all on the field and, in this case, come out victorious? Well, that's why anybody is a football fan, you know, and, and uh, you know, as, as a fan, I was elated, you know, as somebody who, uh, whose livelihood depends on this franchise, it, it was, I, I can't describe it in words, but going back, it's, it was actually 2009, that game. And, yeah, that's right. and it was, uh, it was just as dramatic and just as Hollywood perfect as the AFC championship game. Cause you had the evil Bill Belichick going for it fourth and two. And, and this was, it was an amazing comeback to begin with because we were out of it with, you know, five minutes left and for Peyton to bring us back again and for that dramatic play to happen. And then, and then it went down to the final seconds with an, uh, an incredible catch by Reggie Wayne. And again, it was on Sunday night football. The whole world is watching. Uh, the crowd is just as loud. I, I would probably say Robert though, that the, the Patriots final drive in the championship game was louder, but I'm not going to, I won't be picked. Well, I wasn't that, that game. And my son, who's now a sophomore at Purdue is still upset with me that I didn't take him to the uh, uh, Colts Patriots game on that Sunday night. Cause he had school the next day. So Andrew, if you're listening uh, the CEO of the Colts is a parent. He hopefully can understand my decision. I'm going to throw some names out here real quick. We have just a few minutes left before we get to the five questions. And if you just want to kind of throw off some quick thoughts about some folks, and I'm just going to try to do it rapid fire because we've had a lot of really cool people come through this city wearing the horseshoe. Marshall Falk. Uh, Marshall Falk, incredible talent. I, I, I wish it, it, he could have uh, been here for his prime, and, uh, but it didn't work out that way. But uh, he's in the ring of honor, and we'll always consider him a Colt. I wish he was with us longer than he was. Uh, my fellow East Sider, graduate of Warren Central, graduated the same year, actually. I went to Howe, he went to Warren. Jeff George. Jeff George, another amazing talent. Um, again, it didn't work out, you know, as uh, either, you know, the Colts or he had planned. Um, I know he did well with, you know, with other teams moving on, you know, with a rocket arm and uh, just, uh, you know, an incredible athlete. Bob Sanders. Bob Sanders, man. Uh, he probably would have been in the Hall of Fame uh, had the injuries not cut his career short. We're debating whether or not he should go in the Hall of Fame. I mean, I'm sorry, the, the Colts Ring of Honor. He didn't play uh, all that many games for us, but when he was – in the game and he was healthy he was a dominating player and a great guy i'm going to preface this with i'm not sure that anyone has made such an impact uh, on his city that he didn't grow up in as peyton manning did of course reggie miller obviously too but as peyton manning did for the colts uh, what was it like to know that this young fellow was going to come play for your colts and and what, what can you tell us about Peyton Manning that perhaps we don't know yet? Well, to begin with, when you have a number one pick and that's a quarterback, nothing is ever guaranteed, as history will tell you. Nothing was ever guaranteed. And we had people saying you should have, you should have you know, taken the other guy, you know. Right. Uh, and, uh, and I remember a preseason, the preseason game that very first year. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we lost, and uh, and there's some fans the next day that were calling and um, saying, you know, I knew you shouldn't have picked Manning. You know, you, didn't, you never won, you never won a championship in college. You know, you can't win with them. Blah 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 blah. You know, and, and uh, that's typical in our business. But Ryan Leaf, Pete. I mean, yeah. it's just, no offense to Mr. Leaf, but oh my God, could you just have imagined how different everything? would have been well uh, you know bobby bethard was considered the greatest ital talent evaluator in the nfl history at the time and he still and he still was but just to show you there are no guarantees uh, he traded up to get ryan leaf and uh, and you know a lot of people said ryan leaf is the guy you should take because he's got that edge to him you know he's 
he's a bad boy and uh you know all you gotta do is win you know and man we're just fortunate that uh bill polian and jim ursay uh saw uh what peyton was and and what he could be and it was uh, a time that I, I i hope but i'm not sure that it can ever happen again anywhere because you, you wanted you didn't want to miss a single offensive play because you never knew what was going to happen and it was just really beautiful to watch that man play football and watch his strategy and watch how and see how intelligent he was you know <laughs> catching the other team off guard and fooling them constantly it was just a joy he's a fascinating guy um very likable you know i still get texts from him out of the blue and and calls and pictures of his kids or whatever and He's such a great example of someone who was laser focused on his craft. Um, he was, uh, you know, he set so many great examples for all our players and, uh, and staff. When he walked into the RCA, excuse me, we walked into Lucas Oil Stadium in the Broncos uniform and you're out on the field. Surreal. Surreal, you know, sad. Great to see him again. Uh, we had this wonderful tribute for him that we played over on the big screen pregame, you know, and I know he, he liked that and enjoyed that. Um, I, I remember him getting sacked by Robert Mathis uh, at a strip sack in his own end zone. <laughs> and I remember him walking to his bench and he's watching the replay and he's got, he got this little, little, little grin that comes across his face. There's Robert doing his thing, you know. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was... Um, you know, but he's, you know, obviously very still involved with the community. Dwight Freeney. Dwight Freeney, um, dominant Hall of Fame material. Uh, again, another guy who was laser focused on his craft. You know, when Robert, I mean, when Dwight would come out of the game or go back into the game, he would walk slower, you know, than my grandma, you know, conserving energy, everything, you know, he had everything down to a fine, uh, you know, a fine line and uh, did everything uh, possible, his diet, his, his conditioning to make himself the best player he could be. And he was, uh, not, again, a joy to watch, watch him uh, unleash on quarterbacks. Last one. And it's interesting, too, because a lot of people forget this connection because he's so prominent for, with other teams. Uh, but Jim Harbaugh had a terrific run here in Indianapolis, a Hail Mary away from making it to the Super Bowl. What are your impressions of Harbaugh's time here? And uh, do you still stay in touch with him a little bit? Uh, you know, I haven't talked to Jim in a while. I, I, I saw him when he was um, coaching the Niners. I'd, I'd see him at league meetings. Uh, I haven't talked to him since he's been in at Michigan. But, um, I, again, another guy who um, who you just admire for their, for their work ethic and their – and his competitiveness, that's the thing that struck me about Jim, uh, a great leader. And he was just so scrappy, never, never give, gave up. Um, I remember that final drive at Pittsburgh in the championship game uh, in January of 96, and there's blood dripping from his hand, and he's driving us down the field. And that was emblematic of, of Jim Harbaugh. Um, we played uh, a Monday night game. In 1996, against uh, the Miami Dolphins, and uh, we were undefeated at the time. And there was a fumble, and there was a massive pileup. And it took the officials literally four or five minutes to unpile everybody. And here was Jim Harbaugh coming up out of the pile, holding the ball high. <laughs> it, was, it was that was just a you know that was Jim Harbaugh in a nutshell. Leaving aside the loss to the Saints in the Super Bowl again. I attended, and I remember at the start of the fourth quarter, I think the Colts were winning. Is that correct, at the start of the fourth quarter? Or it was very close. Very close. We may have been tied. Mayor Ballard texted me and said, if the Colts win, we're flying back on their team plane, so get down here as soon as possible. And I have to confess, I've never rooted for any team to win anything as hard as my entire life as I rooted for the Colts to win that game so that I could fly back on the team plane with the Indianapolis Colts. Obviously a terrible loss to go through. But I wanted to ask you, other than that, could you think of one or two games that the Colts lost that just took you the longest to get over? Because I would imagine sometimes in your business, you have to take a never too high, never too low approach. 
Like you just can't get so despondent that you can't focus on the next thing. But are there one or two losses that kind of lingered for a little bit longer? Uh, AFC championship game at Pittsburgh, January of 96. Uh, the last three minutes we had, or maybe four, we were leading. We had uh, three opportunities to put the game away. Um, and I, can, I, I don't know if you want me to go into detail, but that one, uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, the drop uh, Hail Mary at the end <laughs> could have won it also. That team that we had, with Harbaugh leading us, we had guys like Siragusa and Tony Bennett. I really think that if we had gotten past the Steelers, we would have won the Super Bowl that year. Uh, the second one uh, is also against Pittsburgh. <laughs> That's the one I was thinking of. Huh? That's the one I was thinking of. Go ahead. Yeah, playoffs um, at, in, in the RCA Dome, 19, January of 96, after 90, I'm sorry, of 06, after the 05 season. We had such a great team. We're undefeated for the first 13 games and uh, and for first 14 games. Sorry, and we had uh, we, we just um, it's one of those games that you just can't explain. And uh, that one, I wish we had back because I think the result would have been a different nine times out of ten, and and we would have won the Super Bowl that year too. So no. those two are really those those are two that you never get over. When is Bettis the but that's the Bettis fumble game at the goal that, line? That is, yes. Yeah. Yep. Give, give, give me two or three words very quickly about Coach Dungy. Greatest communicator I've ever known. Never, never uh, rarely raised his voice, but every word commanded respect. We end all podcasts with the same five questions to our guests, and we have Mr. Pete Ward on from the Indianapolis Colts. He is the COO. Pete, are you ready? I'm ready. What was your, maybe we already know, but what was your first job? Uh, I was uh, cutting grass and, and watering plants for a neighbor at nine years old. What was your first concert? Eric Burton and the Animals, Monterey uh, Fairgrounds in Monterey, California, and I was in the fourth grade. <laughs> must have had some kick-ass parents and the opening act was uh um an unknown named frank zappa oh you're kidding me did he have yeah. the mothers with him or was he just no, frank? it was the mothers of invention was the opening act if you could suggest any book for someone to read which book would you recommend oh boy i i would say uh the the Death and Life of Dith Pran, and it's about uh, a, a photographer, a photographer for the New York Times uh, during the Cambodian Revolution when the Khmer Rouge came into town. It's an amazing story of survival. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Uh, VE Day. 1945, victory in Europe. Last one, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Wow, there's so many to choose from. Um, living, did you say living or dead? Living today. Living. Oh, living today. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of uh, uh, a sports figure. I, 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 you know, this, but they're, but they're, they're all, they're all dead, you know, but uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb right now and, and say Monty Moore, the play-by-play uh, -play announcer for the Oakland A's back in their uh, heyday of the late sixties and early seventies. That's that sounds pretty shallow, but that's the first one that comes to mind. And I know you're on limited time. I would have loved to have chatted with Joe Nuxall as a Reds fan growing up in the early to mid-70s. No, exactly right. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, 
the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast has been Pete Ward. He has been terrific with his time in the middle of the NFL season. If you want to know why leadership matters, then get to know Pete Ward. Very few people are talked about with the esteem that he gets talked about when his name is mentioned. And it's because for all he's done for the city, the league, the team, and the community. Thank you, Pete, very much. Thank you very much, Robert. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.